our context, I think uh, everybody here tonight was here last time. Uh, we're on the road to Jerusalem, right? At the last part of the ministry of Jesus. Remember if you're uh, turn back again to the ninth chapter and verse uh, 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus set out for Jerusalem. Resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so all of this period, starting with 951 up to where we're at now, uh, he's on the road to Jerusalem traveling and, and all these discussions take place. Uh, he sets out resolutely because he already knows that they're going to kill him. Uh, he's been there uh, each time for the Passover, uh, for the Pentecostal earlier in his ministry. Every time he goes to Jerusalem, he winds up in a debate with the religious leaders, and he winds up also escaping with his life. Uh, he spends most of his time in Galilee simply because he wasn't welcome in Jerusalem. They were ready to take his life. And so now he goes, and he also knows that, that providentially God has protected him up to this point. His time had not come. In fact, if you hold your place there again, flip over to John, uh, the seventh chapter, and look at verse uh, John 7, verse 20, uh, where he refers to their uh, trying to take his life. And then in verse 30, it said, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. And then, let's see, I believe in, uh, is it 8 and verse uh, 20? I think that's it if I'm... Right, his time had not yet come. Again, to just get a feel for the fact that, uh, that on the one hand, they're going to kill him of their own free will. And yet God has providentially interfered, and he has given him that three-and-a-half-year ministry. And then at the final analysis, we'll come to Jesus on the cross, and God literally forsaken him. In other words, what God will do is he will stop interfering. He'll just get out of the way. Uh, and they will go ahead and do what they've been wanting to do all the time. So uh, think of Jesus from the standpoint that from the very first, uh, the religious leaders have wanted to kill him. And God has providentially intervened. They've not been able to do it. Uh, now he's very stern, resolutely sets out for Jerusalem at the last. And he knows this time that, that God will not step in. Uh, and we'll find him, of course, uh, right before the event going out to Gethsemane and praying that, if possible, this might be taken from him. And it, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, knowing all the time he's praying uh, that God is going to abandon him. And, and that will be it on that occasion. So it's with this frame of mind that he makes his trip to Jerusalem. Well, it, it just seems as he gets closer in, in this latter part that he becomes extremely bold. He has nothing to lose. Uh, in his teaching, uh, and his, his aggravation, if that's the correct word, it may not be, with the religious leaders and those that oppose the, the truth, uh, seems to come out. Uh, like, for example, in verse 31 there in chapter 13, 
when they tell him that Herod wants to kill him. Well, he, he may have said, well, join the crowd, you know, that Herod's one of a number that wants to kill him. But he said, uh, go tell that fox, uh, etc. And so he, he knows they want to kill him, and he knows that now they're <coughs> going to succeed. Uh, he's not looking forward to this. Uh, the, the ordeal of, of all that's going to be involved in beating him and mocking him and, and crucifying him and, and knowing that Peter is going to reject him and uh, turn and, and deny him, uh, it's no more appealing to him than it, than it is us. I don't believe that we fully uh, will appreciate his situation unless we deal with the fact that Jesus was a man and that he had emptied himself and came to this earth, was tempted in all ways that you and I are, and if he had some mystical cloud or circle floating around on his head and, and that protected him from everything, uh, all the unpleasanties of life, then he really wouldn't have been tempted in all the ways that we are. He, was, he, was, he had emptied himself of his godhood and had taken upon himself human flesh and he had grew and studied and matured and, and now he had reached this, this point that this is going to happen to him. All right, now, notice the statement he makes here, and as we go through here, we'll start reading in the 14th chapter. We want to look at this from the standpoint of, of what it's actually saying and deal with it in that context. But another thing as we go through here, we're always looking at it from the standpoint of evidences of truthfulness and, and inspiration. And we've noted, uh, for example, that prophecy and its fulfillment, etc., that these are evidences of, of inspiration. But there's other marks of, of truthfulness and, and inspiration within the material itself. And so I'd like for you to look at Jesus from the standpoint of, of the environment he was in and then ask yourself, what was there in that environment that could produce Jesus. Uh, what I mean is you see Paul as a Pharisee was a product of his environment. Uh, Peter and James and John in their conceptions of the Messiah and their conceptions of the kingdom were, were a product of the environment and the teaching and the influence of, of that day. And, and we see this constantly in the statements that they make. Uh, we see it in the, in the Apostle Paul. Any person that you'll ever read about is a, is a total product in many ways of that environment. I'm not saying that he's not an individual, he is, but I'm saying his information is limited to his environment. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, went to Oxford. Uh, uh, the vice president graduated from Harvard and, and then went on to higher ed education in that, in that realm. And that environment has their, its influence on their thinking. And it shows in many ways. In Bill Clinton, for example, he comes across as a paradox. On the one hand, he's carrying his Bible to a Southern Baptist church on the one hand and, and touting homosexual rights on the other. Well, he's, he's not, a, I don't, although I differ with him, I don't believe the man is a hypocrite. I think he's a, he's a product of two different worlds there. There's, there's the Harvard, the Oxford influence, the, uh, the liberal thinking, and and then there was his traditional background in, in, that, in the Southern Baptist Church. Okay, look at Jesus. Anybody you can look at in all history you can do this with. And one of the most fascinating things about Jesus is that, that he is over and above his environment. That the same weaknesses, the same flaws, uh, the same misunderstandings 
uh, that they have, he just simply doesn't have. And then, though, you say, well, you, you keep in mind also that the people that write about him have those weaknesses and flaws, okay? Matthew was a publican. Uh, Mark, we, we can, all we have to do is, is scan his vocabulary and syntax, and you can tell he's, he's not a well-educated person. Luke is a, a Gentile and, and educated in that realm, the physician. Uh, John's Jewish background uh, comes out in his misconceptions, and he makes it very clear in his writing that he doesn't understand a lot of these things. He just comes right out and tells you that we didn't understand this at the time. So the, the very people that are giving us this personality were themselves a product of an environment. And yet out of all of this comes this personality who is not the product of the environment, who is, who is over and above it. And, and, and we can look at him in contrasting with the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the religious thinking of that day and also contrasting with even the very people that are telling us the story. And there's something that stands out that it's just impossible to account for. It's like one writer said that if, uh, you know, if, if, if Jesus was conjured up in somebody's imagination, then, some, then water does indeed rise higher than its source uh, because we have something here that, uh, that is over and above the environment itself. Okay, look at the statement he makes here. And here is a Jew now that is trying to identify himself as the Messiah. And look what he says here. Uh, uh, Mark, read that verse 34 and 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay. This is Matthew, of course, gives the full discourse on that as he groups everything together in his topical order. And Luke is going to say a lot more about it. But here is the Jewish Messiah that everybody's looking forward to. And, and, and what about Jerusalem in the mind of the Jew at this time? What kind of a place was it? Holy city. Holy city. Uh, and, and, and the holy of holies for the Jew is the temple, isn't it? Here's a, and so... In, to all Jews, this is a, to, to get an idea of, of how these people felt, and then are we going to get an idea, how does the Orthodox Jew today feel about the city of Jerusalem? Okay, it's his holy city, isn't it? That's why that those three million Jews over there are ready to fight several hundred million Arabs. I mean, they will fight before they're going to, they're going to, they're going to give out. And that's their city. And, and they're there, and they're willing to fight the rest of their life. Uh, and, and the ultimate in their thinking in the 20th century is for the rebuilding of the temple and the restoring of that city. That's the ultimate in the Jewish thinking. Well, then imagine how it was 2,000 years ago with the, the, uh, the idea of the Messiah at a fervent pitch. You know, Daniel had prophesied he was going to come in the time of the Fourth World Empire, and here we are with Rome. And so here you are with Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews, and the temple that Herod has restored, and they are so proud, you know, that's everything. And so here comes this guy that's been doing all these miracles and been teaching like uh, nobody you've ever heard, and, and you think this is the Messiah, and he definitely claims it. And so what does he say? 
going to destroy your city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and that you've rejected me, your house will be left to you desolate. Uh, Matthew, in his, will go ahead and record that, that he says there wouldn't be one stone left upon another when he got through with it. And of course, when we get to Luke 21, Luke will give us that. Remember, we noted that uh, the difference between Matthew and Luke is Matthew gathers everything up and puts it in topical order. So he takes the destruction of Jerusalem passages and the kingdom passages and the miracle passages and he lumps them together in topical order. Uh, Luke gives it to you in chronological order. And so Luke gives you a taste here, and then he'll, he'll give you more elaboration when we, when we get over to chapter 21. But what causes this? It, I, I bet you could not have found a single solitary Jew anywhere on this earth then that would have made a statement like that, that the city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And then to go on to say that not one stone would be left standing at the temple is going to destroy it. And so that's the opposite of what the Messiah should say. And yet he says it. Okay, and then, of course, the interesting thing is that it is going to be destroyed, isn't it? In, in 70 A.D., uh, Rome will literally destroy Jerusalem and they will destroy the, the Jewish temple. And, and here is their Messiah forecasting it. Okay, continue on. Think about him again in the environment as we continue on. Uh, Mark, you must start reading here in the 14th chapter. Uh, read to a comfortable spot and pause, and let's go on around and read through that 14th chapter. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they said that, and they had nothing to say. When he noticed how a guest picked a plate of honor at the table, he told them, told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat a feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they, shall, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, 
Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now large crowds were traveling to him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost, to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Okay, let's continue on just through that 15th chapter, uh, through the 7th verse. Okay. Look at it. Uh, again, as we look at it, keep in mind the, the religious thinking of this day, uh, the nature of people, and then here we have one that uh, is identified as the Messiah. The Jews think this is the great king that they're looking at, the, the son of David. Uh, to give you an idea of even the thinking of the disciples at this time, uh, remember James and John have already asking could they be on his right and left hand they wanted top positions in the kingdom remember that uh, uh, their mother came to him and I don't know who came first them or the mother but the mother came to him also and and she had asked remember how indignant the other disciples and they were having a big discussion who would be the greatest and then remember Peter when he got his sword he's he's ready to fight what I'm saying is these disciples definitely have an idea of a, a kingdom like under David and a king that's going to lead them uh, they're going to overthrow Rome. They they think in fleshly terms. They think of a king in a very prestigious position, and then they think of uh, higher positions here. Uh, they definitely are concerned about prestige and power and things of this nature. They're they're human beings, just as we look and and see that some of the very best among us are definitely concerned about prestige and and power and and what others think of you and things like that. But then here is uh, Jesus. We've noted the statement he made about Jerusalem. 
Uh, we've seen his attitude on the Sabbath all the way through there. He, his, his statement on Jerusalem was shocking for somebody that's supposed to be the Messiah. But here again, just as last week, we've got him healing somebody on the Sabbath, don't we? It's like he goes out of his way to heal on the Sabbath. And, on, and then also, I don't know whether he really, this big a percentage was really on the Sabbath or that the gospel writers, it, it just stood out in their mind so much that they recorded more of them. You know, it could have been either way. But it's like that it, it obviously caught their attention because the gospel writers constantly are pointing out uh, these specific miracles that he did on the Sabbath day. So here he is going out of his way to do something that flies in the face of their interpretation uh, of the Sabbath day. And yet he defends it by saying something that is perfectly logical uh, so far as the, the value of the human being over the day itself and gives them a contrast there. Then he notices uh, something in their behavior, and that is that, uh, that they are wanting the places of honor at the table. And again, we don't relate to that from our environment because uh, it's not as big a thing. Although we, if you've gone to banquets, there are always certain places of honor, you know, up at the top and all. But from what I can gather reading from Lamson and others concerning the culture at this day, that this was really big to be uh, placed in a certain spot of honor. And where was I? This was, uh, oh, was really recent, I know where it was, is on a news program. Some, it, it was dealing with uh, the affairs they have at the White House when they invite a lot of people in. And I never thought about it, but it said it is really a monumental task determining where you're going to set everybody because you had to be sure that you didn't offend. And uh, just anybody doesn't sit next to the president. And according to the importance of your position, you set relative to the president's, and that's all worked out, that the White House staff works that out. And according to how important your position is now, you set relative to the president. And uh, if they have a visiting official, uh, from uh, Britain or another country, uh, they have to be very careful that they don't offend this person by setting them in a position that would seem to be inferior to, say, a, a, the same position from another country. And, and this is something that every now and then they, they botch it and really offend somebody. Well, I never thought of that, but it's, uh, it, it, it really happens. Uh, we went to a simple banquet the other day at the uh, top 10% of the high school. And always at these, what do they do? They, they, uh, they'll identify important people there. And they'll say that here's the, uh, somebody that's uh, um, the county executive and somebody else that's over the roads in the school and somebody that's over this and all. And then somebody will notice that they forgot somebody. And then there will be the blushing and, and all like that, and they realize that here's this other person that's an official that was not recognized in some way. So if you're an official... And other officials get recognized, and it's somewhat of a put-down if you don't. So I'm saying we are this way too. Okay? Well, here's Jesus now, the Son of God. Here's the Messiah. And he notices all this going on. And he just flies right in the face of it. He's basically saying, it seems to me, what you and I, I think, feel. This is silly. You know, this is, this is silly. 
to be that conscious and, and of uh, prestige and power and everything like that, that you're going to become offended uh, if you don't get set in a certain position or somebody else does. And so he actually takes issue with that, uh, tells them to set in the lower place, and then if the person wants them in a higher place, they can go ahead and set them. But the fact he had to tell them that lets you know that it, there was a little bit of competition getting there and, and getting the, the most advantageous seats, and yet he flies right in the face of it. All right, then notice what he says, beginning with verse 12. That would be better understood, if you're reading it in their vernacular, when he said, when you give a luncheon, do not invite your friends and your brothers or your relatives. What do you think he's saying that? Don't have a luncheon where you invite your friends and your brothers and your relatives? What is he saying? Don't do it for that reason, so they'll repay him, but be concerned about people that don't have. Okay, and, but is he, he's not saying, in other words, nobody here understands it literally that, right. it, that, that you don't. In fact, Jesus sat down at luncheon with his friends and brothers and all himself. Put the word only in there, and it would be uh, the, the meaning given. Uh, uh, when you give a luncheon, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives only, or your rich neighbors. You know, that's, uh, the whole point is don't invite people specifically for those reasons uh, so that you may be invited back and, and that you can be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. How do you think that went over with the religious leaders and the, the higher-up at the time he said this? Not very well at all, because they usually considered those type of infirmities to be caused by sin. Right. And in fact, uh, they almost were caste thinking, like the people in... Can you imagine this statement in India uh, now that... Uh, and, and as uh, Hiram pointed out, that they literally uh, thought these people had real problems. Uh, remember in John 9, the blind man, and they said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? But there's no question in their mind that he was, he was brought on to sin. Remember Job, when it happened to him, and they tried to convince him that it was because of his sin that it happened that way. So when he takes issue with this whole thing and tells them to invite the downtrodden in and tells them not to do things just for people who can do something back for you, but to do something for those that cannot. I don't know that you can find this teaching anywhere outside of Christianity. And that's, uh, uh, it's interesting when you go back and read from the various writings of that day that those people are just as human as we are. In fact, I was, uh, I've got a book in there by the bedside that I've been reading some the past few weeks on by Augustine, who was one of the, you know, the early scholars uh, out in the first few centuries, and it's called The Confessions of Augustine, and he's just simply writing his memoirs and notes and his thinking. And you read that, and you can appreciate so much the New Testament. This guy was considered a spiritual giant in his day, and yet he is so human, uh, and, and he is so full of weaknesses and frailty that when you see it, and his thinking process sometimes actually seems unspiritual and yet he was a spiritual giant uh, in, in that day. Uh, this kind of thing here, of thinking of people from a totally equal standpoint, uh, not anybody having the right to be exalted over anybody else in any way, uh, looking on the most 
downtrodden as if they are absolutely 100% equal with everybody else, you and I, I think, could not fully appreciate it because in our society, we live in a society that's been influenced by Christian principles, and so although we don't practice this, we've been taught it. You know, and we have statements like all men are created equal and things like that. We may not really believe it, but at least that's, we, you know, I mean, we may not practice that, but we, we, we at least say we believe it and all. These people didn't even believe it. You see that this is the environment. There's no constitution like ours that's been influenced by the New Testament. Uh, these people don't believe what he's saying. And so when he makes these kind of statements, uh, he's stepping outside his environment. And yet the interesting thing is that as people have read this through the centuries, that they found themselves inwardly identifying with that. There's just something there that, that sounds right and you identify with, and yet it is different than the way people think. Uh, nobody has Nike shoes on, do you? Because I'm going to give an illustration here. You do, Jack, you do too. You all mind if I give a Nike illustration? Because I, I got a pair of Nikes in there too. I didn't, you know, I, but... And it, you may have got yours like mine on, on sale for, you know, 80% off or something like that. But anyway, well, the point I'm making is how that, uh, that in society as a whole and all, that this kind of thing is, is there. Uh, this is, uh, I either read this in the, in the Consumer Reports or the U.S. News and World Report. I read both of them last week, so come out of one of them. But anyway, here's, here's your Nike. Uh, Nike buys it from Taiwan, or one of those places. And the same people that make tracks for Kmart and whatever Walmart is makes, makes that shit. Okay? Nike buys it for $17.50. Now, I may not be talking about the one you're on. This is the one they used. You may have a different. Nike buys it for $17.50. It comes to the U.S., and they put the Nike logo on it, and they sell it to the stores for $32, and the stores sell it for $65, okay? Walmart goes over and buys that same shoe for $17.50 and comes back and sells it for in the store for $32. It's the same shoe on this particular one they use. All right, the difference on that is um, Michael Jordan makes several million dollars on endorsements. You know how he jumps up and Nike and everything like that? Well, he don't do that for anything. So if you want to wear a Nike, you're going to pay Michael to jump up and duck the basketball. And, and, I, and more money's going to Michael than maybe goes in that shoe. No wonder he's jumping. <laughs> um, all right, what is true with Nike is true. I'm saying regularly in our society, we have what we call name brands. And although we like to think that they're all the best, no, the truth is that there are a lot of non-name brands that are the exact same thing as the name brands. I'm not saying they all are, but that a lot of them are. And that you pay extra for that name. And, and we're, we've even started the thing in recent years where uh, shirts, you know, it, it's, uh, we wear something to show uh, that it costs. In other words, if I have something up here, uh, alligator or something like that, you know, <laughs> People look at that and know that um, uh, Walmart or Kmart or Target, they don't sell that shirt, you know, that i got to go to a regular place and, and pay $35 for that shirt, you know. And so, but it's, uh, I'm saying that, I'm not saying that everybody does that. I think that a lot of people that wear that really could care less one way or the other. In fact, you, you buy those same stuff on sale for 
uh, 60% off, you know, sometime, you know, that, so there's no, no problem there. And, but I'm saying that they couldn't do that except a lot of people were hung up on that kind of thing. I mean, they're, they're, unless people were willing to go out and pay $100 for something that, for the name, they really couldn't do that kind of thing. And what is true there, and this again, Consumers Report, uh, automobiles, you know, they advertise the Lexus and all this kind of stuff, and you go on up to the 47, 50,000, etc. It said after you hit the Honda Accord and the Camry and the Taurus, that level, you had topped out so far as quality. That, 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 that you, you just literally had topped out. And all you could add was extravagance. And so they recommend, they said that, you know, that that's it. They can't give you a better engine. And they can't give you more safety. They can't give you more anything. You've just simply topped out with, with those vehicles in that $20,000 range. You've actually topped out. So what you're paying for up here is a little more extravagance, but the prestige that comes when somebody sees this nameplate and they say, hey, that thing cost $40,000. You must be very successful, Mark. Uh, 40000 40, You see? And that's, that's why, you know, a Cadillac, Mercedes used to be on, on, on that. But it's uh, a few years back, uh, a lot of people got disturbed in our country when they found out that uh, their Oldsmobiles and Buicks and Cadillacs had Chevrolet engines in them and Chevrolet transmissions. And, and, and it was the same, you know, it's just they, they, they were playing for a little better interior and all, but they were paying maybe double uh, the, the price for that kind of thing. So what I'm saying is... We're the same way that they were, uh, and, and it's just that uh, we have to quit leaving it there and, and bring it up here and say, what would Jesus be if he was living in our society today? And, and here he is, you know, and he's, he's not a name brand person, and he's not a prestigious person, and he's not the guy that's going to walk in and and want to be in the most prestigious anything, but he does more than that. He does what we would like to do sometime, and we just don't do. He tackles the people that are that way. And that's the interesting thing to me, that, uh, that can you imagine how this went over? Put yourself in a position. Keep in mind, Jesus is not a landowner. He doesn't have any big family. He has no prestige behind him. He doesn't have any degrees. And so here you are going to an auction, and you've got all these people up here with doctor's degrees. And they're all decked out in the best, and here you are, it's a White House setting, you know, and everybody's concerned. And you come in, and you're not decked out, and you don't have a doctor's degree, and, and you, you actually speak out vocally on that kind of thing. And you call it to their attention, the absurdity of the whole process. And, and you get them to rec and you try to get them to recognize that haughtiness and pride is sinful before God. And then you look around and you don't see any poor people there, and you rebuke them and say that, hey, why aren't there some poor people in here? You know, why is, uh, why is only well-to-do people in there? Why aren't there some poor people? Why aren't there some downtrodden of life? Why aren't they here? You know, they're just as valuable as you are. They're worth just as much. How would that go over? Well, that was, that was the Christ. It's come. I'm saying that he's, he's not a man of anybody. He's not the product of anybody's environment. 
And there was nothing in the Jewish society that produced a Jesus. That is just, there's nothing there. Uh, and the weaknesses of humanity, so far as the giving into it and all, you just simply don't see it. Okay, now, he, anybody want to make any further comments on that? It's interesting, if you think about this now, our services, you know, sometimes and all that, uh, we sometimes have services that some of these people he talked about would not feel very comfortable in. You know, Social classes go to certain churches. Uh -huh. Classes of our churches seems to be a middle, middle upper class church. Yeah. That uh, it's. Uh, Can we think of the good prospect as somebody that's. That's in our class. Right. right. The good prospect has a job and, you know, and, and is really going up. And how often do we meet some of these people that. Uh, like over here, look at, again, look over here, chapter 15, we got there, and look at that, verse 1, tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Um, what would that be in the 20th century? Who are the tax collectors and the sinners in the 20th century? Welfare people, divorcees, Homosexuals. People with criminal records. Yeah. I heard um, the tape, uh, Tammy, you know the tape you got me on Rubel Shelley. He did a weekend, weekend four lines up at uh, Hickson where Tammy and Chuck go. Did you all hear the whole series? It's the first two. Okay. I, may, I don't know if this was on the third tape or what, but if somewhat humorous, he said that. Uh, uh, some guy had spoke to him, and he said, um, uh, Brother Shelley, he said, did you know that, we need, you know, talking about they need to straighten out, that word is circulating all over, that the church where you preach, that divorcees and people that have been in jail and all kinds of those type people are, are coming over there and frequent in the place where you, and, and that they are just as welcome as anybody else and all like that. And said he was uh, talking to him and said, Shelley, and says, well, he said, I don't know whether that is circulating, but said if it's not, will you help circulate it? Because that's what we want. <laughs> that's what we want out. <laughs> We'd like to get it out. And I think he has. Uh, I know when I was there and visited their service, they have a prison ministry, and they apparently have a number that go into the jails, and and they also get down on the the worst part, the other side of the tracks, as as part of their ministry there. Um, Barbara and I remember when we were in Jessup. I don't know if you can remember that, the young guy that worked in New Brunswick who lost his job because of the type of people he was getting in the church. Okay, keep in mind, this is back in the early 70s, and we're still coming along in this black-white thing. And uh, this guy, I can't remember his name now, but uh, we was, I was working in the church in Jessup, and he was in uh, New Brunswick, right down on the coast. And man, he was going to town. They had... Uh, their membership was a little over 100 or something, 100 or something when he came there. He had it up to well over 200, and they had purchased a couple of buses, and it was just, I thought everything was going great. And the next thing I know, they got rid of him. You know, and they didn't, and what it was, though, Too many blacks. he was going in the black community. 
and he found them very receptive, and so he was baptized, and a lot of blacks, and, he's, and also people on the lower part of town. And these people are coming to church, and see, they didn't, they didn't help the contribution a lot, you know. They needed services, but they didn't help the contribution a lot. And some of them didn't have a way, and they were having to pick them up, but they were becoming concerned because they thought it was going to be taken over by that type of people. They fired him. Uh, the church I was a part of one time in Washington, D.C., we were baptizing people by the God, you know. In fact, that's where the first person I ever baptized was in D.C. as part of their personal work program, you know, and is a, is a black lady that I baptized. Barbara and I studied with her together. We had a personal work program. We filled the building. We run out of parking spots. Uh, we had to go down to the movie theater and, and rent space there. It's about a block away from the church building to have a Bible class. But some of them got disturbed because the the wrong type people were becoming a bigger part of the membership there. And so we left. The next thing we know, the building is sold, and they bought ground out in the suburbs. And so they could, and, but it's interesting, we went back to visit them a few years back, and those black people had moved out there too. Yeah. <laughs> and they took over that big, nice building, and, and some, they were having to leave and go somewhere else. But they uh, did, took it over. You know, but... Um, but the point is, I'm saying that this attitude that Jesus is dealing with here, it's very easy to leave it in the first century and say all those ugly Pharisees and those, those publicans and those uh, tax collectors, you know, man, if we was there, but if we identify with the, uh, or have in any way with the racism in our own society, uh, if we don't feel that poor people and the downtrodden, etc., are equal to us, if we don't look on people that have been divorced and adulterers and homosexuals and whatever, if we don't look on them as good prospects that we need to mingle with and try to reach with Christ, then we are the people that he's talking about here. If we feel uncomfortable uh, mingling with, uh, with these individuals and, and try, trying to reach them. <coughs> By the way, is there anything that, uh, they were the people that hurt him, Gladly, weren't they? Can you think of any reason why these people may, in the final analysis, be the best prospects? Because they don't have preconceptions about a lot of these types of things. The ones that he was talking to, the religious leaders, they already, they felt like they knew everything about it. They already knew, and he was uneducated, and he was trying to tell them he didn't know anything that they didn't already know. And the stuff that he was telling them couldn't be true because they already knew it all. So the okay. people that he that were listening to it, they didn't have these preconceived notions, and he could just go in and explain things to them, and they would see it for what it was rather than for what they thought it ought to be. Okay, a lack of bias. Many times, a lot of these people out here that have not gone to church, have not studied the Bible, uh, don't have the same kind of biases. They're willing to just listen to it. Uh, when we, uh, the most successful place that we ever worked was in New Jersey, and uh, the, the biggest uh, of the church we was uh, involved with and working, the biggest percentage of the people that we reached now had a Catholic background. And that they weren't active in the Catholic church, but they had a Catholic background. And we found them uh, much easier to study with than a lot of people here in the South because they, they were really not very studied in the Bible at all, but they believed very strongly in God. And the Lord, and so that we could just sit down and 
and study, and they were they were willing to willing to do it. But that attitude means a lot. Anything else? What about some of these characters? The the uh, divorcees, the adulterers, the fornicators, the uh, the people that have, are out on the street. Now, what else that that might actually cause them to be an excellent prospect as far as the condition of their heart? Well, they're looking for something better, for sure. I mean, they, a lot of them don't have anywhere to go but up. Okay. They've, uh, they've really suffered the... Okay, the pride would obviously the would not problem. be there. They they really suffered the consequences of sin, haven't they? That uh, that who is looking for a doctor? I mean, a medical doctor. Uh, I haven't uh, uh, been to a doctor in thirty years because I've been very fortunate with with my health, and so I'm not looking for a doctor. But if I started to feel some pain or have a discharge of blood, or notice a lump, or notice a mole that was changing, or felt lightheaded, I'd go looking for a doctor pretty quick. And so, that, and so would in any one of you. So it's when we, when we feel the need for something, and so these people, uh, as a result of the consequences of the sin and all, uh, were, seemed to be very receptive to the things that he was saying. And hey, uh, Come over here to the latter part of the 14th chapter. What do you get out of that? Are you talking about the excuses or are you skipping that part? No, I'd skip that for that. We'll get back there. But the cost of being a disciple. What do you get out of that? It seems to be contrary to even a lot of what we hear today in terms of Do you think that Jesus, that the one that said this now, right here, the based on this premise here, I mean, look at this, uh, uh, large crowds, uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother and his wife, and of course we know the, the word hate, as used in the, the Bible, the Greek word means to esteem less. That's the literal meaning of the word. He's not saying to despise your parents. But if, if you come to me and do not esteem less, the father and mother, wife, children, brothers, in other words, I'm, I'm number one. He cannot be my disciple. I mean, that's literally cannot. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then he says, uh, he gives an illustration about sitting down and counting the cost. And then he goes on and uh, talks about going to battle. As you, you know, and, uh, and the way you would think about it. And then in verse 33, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Uh, salt is good. If it loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. That's pretty plain. I don't understand that statement. Or keep in mind, salt 
was a preservative for them, and they used it, you know, as a preservative. And so they thought of putting a little salt on something for the preserving qualities. In fact, they didn't even use like salt like we do from a taste standpoint. Salt was a such a precious item then. In fact, I was reading this a few weeks, a good article on it. The word salary comes from the word salt. Salt was such a precious item in antiquity that it was extremely valuable. And many times countries paid their soldiers in salt and they could actually use it to purchase things. Now we, well, it's hard for us to relate to because it's so common. And where, oh, I know where I read it. It was in a health publication. It was talking about how salt and high blood pressure and all, and it said all through antiquity that's never been a problem for the simple reason that man never had that much salt in his diet because it was, a, it was, it was something that was a precious item, precious item and that salt to them wasn't something they put on food for the taste. It was a very precious, a very expensive item, and they used it only to preserve. And so you put it on meat to preserve it. That was their number one use. So they understood what he was saying when he compared them to salt. That if salt doesn't have the ability to preserve, then it's not fit for anything. Just throw it out like gravel. And so they were to be the preserving quality of life. And, and if we're not, then we're worth nothing, so far as God is concerned. Of course. But when it says it can't be restored or it can't be made salty again. If it loses that, its saltiness. Right. So, what are they saying if a Christian look, lost his... I mean, how okay, he, who's his audience here? He told Jews. To Jews. What's he about ready to do to... Judaism. Judaism was to prepare the world for the Messiah. Uh, in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8, Moses gives them the law and he says that uh, if you obey these principles and these commands, then other nations will look at you and say, what nation is there that has such a righteous God? And what nation is there that has such righteous laws? And so they were to go out and to manifest the true God and his nature. All right, then Paul writes the condition in, uh, in Romans 2 when he says the, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Jews. That God's name was actually blasphemed because of what they actually saw and the, the haughtiness and a lot of other qualities of the Jewish people. So they had lost their saltiness. And uh, here they are looking for a king with high positions and they're going to overthrow Rome and they're going to have all this prestige and all this power and they're going to rule from Jerusalem and all. And here he comes along and he just knocks this down one, one right after the other, all these concepts. Then he tells them that discipleship is something that's going to cost them. That they're going to have to be willing to work, they're going to have to be willing to suffer, they're going to have to be willing to give of themselves uh, and then he says, you're going to have to esteem me above all these other things. And then rather than get something, it's like Kennedy saying, ask not what your country can do for you, for what you can do for your country. Well, they definitely were looking for that kingdom for what it can do for them. And so he says, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. So the kingdom is not going to get you a lot. It's going to cost you. Okay, and keep in mind, the night 
after he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to get down and wash their feet and tell them that if he takes the place of a servant, that, that's what he expects of them. I guess what I was wondering about that was, is there, an, is there an application, is there an application on this, the saltiness uh, to us today? I mean, or, or is it just something that, that applied to them? Well, if I've heard people say stuff like, you know, if you, you know, they tried to, you know, they tried to apply this in a way that if you're a Christian and you, you know, you lose your fervor or whatever, then you can't regain that. Or, you know, I think that'd be a misuse. Or, the principle would be valid. Jesus speaking to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells them they're the salt of the earth and the light, etc. And he's going to send them out. But we are, I mean, God's people, whether it was the Jews then or Christians now, are the preserving quality, the salt, of, we should be the salt of the earth. And if we are not enlightening our world by the way we live our lives, the way we conduct our families, uh, the things that we teach and all, then we're worthless so far as the Lord is concerned. I mean, what good are we doing? If we are to be a light into the world, if we're to, to manifest the rightness of all of this, if we're to lead these people to Christ, and we're not doing these things, then the question is, what value are we? We're of no value. We're, 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 we're fit for nothing except to be cast, cast out. I mean, that would be, we're just worthless. And, of course, this was going to happen to them. But uh, to stretch that to the point that uh, you mentioned, the best way to tested is to look at it. We all know that's not so. You know, in other words, all of us have known individuals that uh, were Christians and who got out into the world and then who repented and come back and were more zealous than they ever were in the first place. I mean, we've all known that type of person. Uh, we've all known the young people that got out and went astray and, and drank and ran around, etc. And then, like the prodigal son, got hold of themselves and came in and, and maybe outdid people that had never done those kind of things. So we know that's uh, you know that that's not not so on that. What about Peter? Peter, right? Uh, denied him, uh, and then turned around, and uh, there was no stopping him after that. I think uh, when Jesus uses a physical illustration to to get a spiritual point on any of these parables, there's always a danger of trying to go into every little point and get more out of it than what he's actually saying. They just simply were to be the salt of the earth, and if they were not they were good for nothing. But in this case, so far as the further up, he, he may have had reference. Judaism was going to be destroyed. You know, it had, it had lost its saltiness and it was, it was literally going to be destroyed. What about a church that loses its saltiness? What about in, a, in any community, what happens to a church if it quits functioning as God would have it do? What's, what's really going to happen to it? It dies. It's going to die. That's right. It literally will die. No, no question about that at all. So in other words, it's going to have to maintain some salt to, to keep its own, own existence. Um, what do you think of that? The statement on the disciple. Mark's observation, a little different. It's interesting we preach this, but uh, is there any evidence in the church that although we preach it, we really don't, most of us don't believe this? Right. Uh, you look at it, and we baptize people, and we teach them. Uh, uh, 
when you have a Bible, when you have any kind of study, whatever it is, other than the Sunday morning, what percentage of the Sunday morning attendance can you normally expect to get there? 75 would be very high, wouldn't it? Very high. About half, uh, generally. Now, I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that these things are required in some legal sense or anything, anything like that. I'm using it from a sense that it, uh, and also I know in our society today, people have jobs that run different times and all. So, but take all that into consideration. There are a large percentage of us, there always have been, that could come to other things that simply do not. They come Sunday morning, take the Lord's Supper. They don't come to Bible class. Uh, you're not going to see them except for that one time partaking of the Lord's Lord's Supper. They'll never be involved and do much of of anything, and they'll and and those people make up really a maybe thirty or forty percent of the whole group, and that's in all of the of the various groups and all. So, what do they obviously believe? I mean, do they believe this? Okay, let's let's go let's go to those of us that go every time they open the door. You think a faithful Christian to Jesus was one that came to service two times on Sunday and once on Wednesday night. Could you have looked, would that have been a faithful Christian if that was it? Now there were a lot of people that were very devout and following the letter of the law that he rebuked very strongly. They, uh, well, obviously, there seems to be more here than just going to a service a couple of times a week, doesn't it? It seems like, a, to my mind, a total life commitment that carries into your everyday life where you have to esteem these principles and that above your parents, your mate, your children, anything else. And any time there's a conflict, that this is number one. That, 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 is, that is literally number one. And that... Uh, in the same way, envy does not give up everything that he has. What's he talking about there? Is he saying that uh, you have to go out and sell everything you've got and give it away? It says, envy who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. What's he, what's he saying there? It's just like the principle above. It's priority. Okay. Uh, is there anything you see in the New Testament that lets you know that he really, they never understood him as saying that you just have to sell everything or give up everything? Did they have any rich people in the early church? Okay. Paul writes to Timothy and says, tell those that are rich in this life not to be high-minded or to trust in their riches, but we're willing to share with others. Uh, what about Philemon that Paul wrote to? Owned a house that was big enough for the church to meet in. Onesimus was his servant, run off. Paul converts him in jail. Uh, he writes back to Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy man uh, with, a, with a household. Uh, so, and there were wealthy people in the, in the early church. What about in the Old Testament? Were there any wealthy, godly people? Okay, but Solomon, of course, lost his on the thing. But um, Abraham, and, and by the way, uh, it wasn't Solomon became wealthy and then the other happened, right? He could have been wealthy and still faithful. So what is he saying here? What you have here, by the way, it's in the same vein as cut off your hand and throw it from you or pluck out your eye. And he does, he's not literally saying that. What do, we, what do we call that in English? Hyperbole. The one characteristic of Jewish teaching was the use of the hyperbole. 
And this, by the way, is true of the prophets. You just you find it over and over and over again. And Jesus, you see that same use that was characteristic in that day. And he's really saying that, that you should be willing to give up anything and everything if it took it, whatever it takes, that, uh, that you should be willing to give it up. I think if, you, if you've got a job that in order to keep it, it would demand that you do things that would be morally wrong, then you give it up. Uh, or, or, any, or anything of, of that nature, whatever it is, and that you would be willing to sacrifice and give and do whatever is necessary to promote the kingdom of God. But this is discipleship. One of the things that uh, uh, I think we got going to have to watch out for in an improvement we're making right now, there's a lot of talk about grace and a lot of pointing out of the wrongness of legalism, everything like that. And man, I'm 100% for that. You know, I don't that we that needs to be there. And you know, we need to put the emphasis more there, and we definitely need to have a better understanding of all that in our fellowship. But I really believe that if a, if the preaching is almost constant that, and we don't do this also, that it's very easy to create a fellowship where everybody's got Jesus as Savior and they're saved by the grace of God, but you really don't have a lot of sacrifice going on and a lot of digging down and giving and, and, and doing and understanding of what it really is to, to be a disciple. It ought to be motivated by love and grace, but the point is it ought to, it ought to be motivated and it ought to come. Any, anybody else with any comments? Right. They've got these five or six steps that we we're totally right on, and that if we've done that, we're we're set. Right. It don't matter what kind of lives we live out here anymore. Right. Or whatever. We create, in other words, legalism can actually be a way of circumventing, isn't it? Because you create uh, create these four or five little steps here, and then those four or five little steps that follow afterwards, and that's a whole lot easier than. Doing the kind of thing he's talking about here, isn't it? A whole lot, a whole lot easier to. Uh, I've never had any problem not singing with a piano, uh, and and I and I really never had any problem being immersed, uh, and I don't have any problem being called a Christian. There's no big effort required in that, is it? The, the the real effort is in the area you're talking about and what he's dealing with right here. Anybody else want to make any comments? Okay, he continues on. We'll pause for tonight with that parable of the lost son. Again, the, the get the feel for it and how different it is to the thinking of the people of that day. And as you read the rest of that, and as we go on, look at not only what it says, but try to take it out of the first century setting and put Jesus in the 20th century. And then also try to look at that environment and the more you look at that environment, I think the more you appreciate Jesus and what he, what he actually was. Okay, if there's nothing else, I'm through that. Would, would you comment just a little bit on back in, uh, like in verse 15 through 24 where it talks about the, the banquet that's been prepared and, and then they start making excuses. And, uh, okay, he's, again, 
his audience in context is the Jews, right? They're only going to the lost sheep of Israel, the Messiah has come. And obviously, I can't see any reason for saying this unless it was taking place, that a lot of people were, I mean, here's this guy that, that he doesn't, it's like he doesn't have time to consider this because he bought a field. Uh, please excuse me. The other one has a yoke of oxen, needs to try them out. Another guy says, I've just gotten married. What would you parallel that to in the church today when we talk about uh, Bible study, doing the will of God, <clears throat> pardon me, reaching out and trying to convert others? Uh, what, any parallel? I work a job late at night on Saturday nights and I can't get up early to come to Bible study. That's exactly right. Right. I work late, I can't get up early on uh, uh, Sunday to come. I don't have time to study. I'd like to study, but I just really don't have time to study the Bible. You know, I'd love to do it. Got time to watch the news, read the newspaper, uh, watch a ball game every now and then, but I really don't have time to study. I think the, the same type thing. You guys are all in college. You can make up a lot of excuses, can't you? On you can you can actually think. Well, we're young now. We're studying. We we've got tests. We've got papers to do. That I really don't have time to get involved and do things and try to lead people to Christ. You know that I can go to service and I can be a decent person, but I don't have time. Well, then after college you're going to get married, and then you got this baby. And, and, and you've you got to make payments on the house and the car and all that good stuff. And, and I'll tell you, your time doesn't become any easier when you get married, does it, Chuck and Tammy? You don't. You're gonna, Nor does you, it when you get older. Right. Your kids and <laughs> Barbara and I, now Jack and Louie still have one. I can't believe it. When the last one left out, Annette, the last one, she's soft, sophomore now, so we've had two years here by ourselves. And, and, you know, I've heard people say, what are you, you going to do when all the kids leave out? No. <laughs> our schedule has never in all our life been this tight. Oh, for the days when the it, it's, kids are It's never, uh, never been this tight. What I'm saying is that there will be no... scary, isn't it, Mark? Well, the point is that uh, then what happens to the old people? What kind of excuses they make? I've already put my time in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, don't, tired. I don't feel good, you know. Uh, but I'm saying that there is no stage in your life where you don't have some excuses if you want them. And, and that perfect time will never come. I mean, you, you, you've always got to earn your living. You're always going to have a job or you're going to school. Uh, your relationships are never perfect. Uh, you will never... If you wait for that perfect time to study, you won't study. And if you wait for that perfect time to be a soul winner or whatever it is, you're just not going to do it. And it seems to me, Mark, that he, he he's, that they were people there that knew they were making all these excuses, and he's pretty disturbed. It sounds like he's uh, he's definitely uh, he could you could follow this with the statement over in you know of seek ye first the kingdom of God. It, uh, was there anything wrong with getting married? Trying out the oxen, or going and considering a piece of land. Matter of priorities. Matter of priorities. Same thing. Nothing wrong with any of those. But if you're going to use something like that as an excuse to uh, to not your responsibility toward God, then that it, that it is something that's wrong there. Any uh, anybody else with a comment? Okay, let me sound one thing off of you. 
then, and then if you want to think about it. I never really understood when, when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. I mean, he says, he says, you know, that he did this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that statement mean? I mean, I mean, I don't understand. I mean, I mean, well, it as an example, but to fulfill righteousness, I mean. Well, obviously, just first of all, well, think of righteousness as just doing right. Okay. Uh, Jesus, John obviously made it clear that that it was unusual to baptize Jesus. We get that. John was shocked. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't think of him as one that that needed to be baptized, and yet uh, he was too. So uh, the. Initial, obviously, there was more to it than a remission of sins because you couldn't, I mean, he had no sins to confess. But there was a public pronouncement there that this was anointed one, and when he was baptized, that's when, you know, the Holy Spirit came to him, and there was a, some sort of manifestation that John saw with his eyes and, and, the, and then and heard with his ears, and the identification, uh, you know, of Jesus. And so there was a physical proclamation of this and then John could be a witness of that you know and so the when the righteousness all I believe is that he was he was doing what is right in other words it was it was also the will of God that he go ahead and, and be immersed and that he be identified and that John be a a witness there and to try to go any further with that I'd really be scared to because there's just uh, not enough information other than that I in other words, all I can do is by process of elimination, and I say it wasn't part of the mission of sins, and uh, John makes that clear, because he didn't even think he should be baptized. And so a physical act, they thought of it as a, as, as, uh, as a cleansing and a coming forth uh, new, and that he did have the starting of his ministry there, and it, it is interesting that God waited until that act before the Holy Spirit came to him.